working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us for Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta. Today I'm talking with Kevin Stevens, an LA-based drummer who recently completed two European tours with David Brighton's Space Oddity, a David Bowie tribute show. Kevin is also the leader of several bands under the umbrella of his company Grits and Gravy Music, which specializes in the funk, soul, R&B, and street music of New Orleans, Memphis, and Detroit. Kevin also teaches at Musicians Institute in Hollywood, where he has developed a 10-week course in New Orleans drumming. June is almost over, which means you're running out of time to be entered to win this great stick package from Innovative Percussion. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash working drummer and donating any amount to the podcast. Doesn't matter if you can only do a buck a month, we'll gladly accept that, and you'll be entered to win 18 pairs of sticks, uh, some bundles, some Chris McHugh bass drum beaters, and a huge deluxe stick bag. So thank you to Innovative for supplying that prize. And of course, you can donate after June is over. There are some great incentives at various levels of donation, including some cool t-shirts and stickers with our new logo, a video lesson with one of our past guests, such as Ben Caesar or Carter McLean, or the chance to be interviewed on the podcast. Again, go to patreon.com slash working drummer. And thanks for your support to help the podcast grow. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. So this is actually the second interview I've done with Kevin. The first one was a few years ago for one of the first articles I wrote for Drummer's Resource, uh, but I wanted to get him on the podcast to talk about the Bowie thing and to talk more about his own bands and what he's been up to in L.A. since then. As you can see from his Facebook page, Kevin is also a great family man, and uh, we got into some of the things that make his work-life balance successful. Great talk with Kevin Stevens. Here we go. So this is a cool uh, full-circle moment for, for you and I because... Uh, the first uh, the first kind of article series I ever wrote was a thing called Working Drummer Spotlight for Drummer's Resource. Um, and Nick at Drummer's Resource was what led me to Matt, who was already doing the, the Working Drummer podcast. Uh, and, and you were the first person that I interviewed for the, the article series, Working Drummer Spotlight. And that was like three or four years ago by this point, right? Has it, has it been that long? I think so. I think so. Already? Um, but uh, I wanted to I wanted to have you on the podcast because a lot has happened since then, um, and uh, you know the the article we did is, was kind of a very overarching thing going going way back into your background. Um, but uh, and you know we'll we'll probably get into some of that. But I want to start with with just what you're doing right now. Um, 
you know, we we lost David Bowie about a year ago, and that was obviously yes. a huge loss for uh, the musical world. But it ended up being beneficial to to you. So talk about uh, that gig that came about and uh, and what that entailed. Yeah, sure. So um, that gig you're talking about is David Brighton's Space Oddity, and David is uh, he's had this David Bowie tribute show, and it's truly like a show. He's a tremendous performer and guitar player, but uh, he's like an impersonator in mm-hmm. this thing. So he does costume changes and wigs and does the whole thing. Wow. And he is coming out of, um, actually, he was in one of the most popular Beatles tribute bands before that and still does kind of the George Harrison role. And I guess that's a whole world. that yeah. I, I haven't really been familiar with this whole tribute band world which is a growing industry that's yes for sure. it's I everywhere mean, it's part of the reason right? i wanted to have you on is because oh, okay. this this whole this whole tribute band concepts is is becoming ubiquitous and there's so many guys making long bread <laughs> doing yeah. these tribute shows yeah it, it's really interesting and um so going back he started this thing about 15 years ago and i was actually in on the early side of that Mm-hmm. Uh, about 12 years ago in 2004 or so, 2005, I was playing some with him. And he was kind of in the early stages, so it was just like in some clubs around town. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brendan Buckley was actually also doing some work with him. Uh, another great drummer, Jason Harrison Smith. He's had like all great drummers, great band. Mm-hmm. Um, but what scheduling-wise, it wasn't really working for me and whatnot. So I referred him to uh, one of my great friends, Ryan Brown who uh, shares a studio with me for another Denver drummer. And he's actually uh, the drummer for Dweezil Zappa, or Zappa plays Zappa. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he started doing those gigs all those years ago. And then it's funny, I would would kind of hear about they were doing better and better. You know, they'd started doing travel dates, and they'd started going around the country and occasionally internationally. And I was really psyched for Ryan and and for David and the band. And... um, about three months uh, before Bowie died, they called me to sub on a gig. Uh, it had been, like I said, about 12 years. So that's some pretty challenging material. Uh, there's a lot, and he, he does everything. It's very specific. Mm-hmm. And there's backing tracks on probably 90% of the tunes. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's all being run from the drum seat. So wow. uh, it's it's to to do one or two gigs it's a lot to learn and and um i took the challenge and i uh and it's funny i don't know if you can see behind me but there's like shelves of yeah albums, but like the top is all just charts of gigs that i've done like wow. I, I put them in like these u.s postal priority shipping envelopes uh-huh. <laughs> and if i if i chart out and i learn material for a gig i put it in there and I just save it, right. you know, for forever. And then years later, I can pull it out. Well, for some reason, the David Bowie folder had been misplaced. And I <laughs> went to look for it, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to relearn this. So Ryan, uh, being a great friend, uh, threw me over the charts that he'd made, and uh, we ca- I kind of made do with that. But anyway, did that one gig. It was a lot of work. To uh, to relearn all that material and and get the timing of the clicks and 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 running all of that together, uh, and then he died a few months later, and that guy's phone just literally, I think the next day, started ringing off the hook, and 
has been just nonstop at forever. Since. Right, right. So what then started to come in was not only, I mean, he'd worked his way up to, you know, he uh, was in the top tier already of this stuff, but was doing like one offset Indian casinos and all that stuff. Yeah. Now it was really like um, tours coming in and right. theater, theater tours. So what we did, um, we've done two different three-week European theater tours wow. uh, in the last six months. And That's so awesome. he's known as one of the premier David Bowie acts in the nation right. uh, or in the world, I guess. So um, it was great. Uh, it's a great band and um, one to 2,000 seat theaters uh, around Northern Europe the first time. And then this last tour we did in the spring uh, was more um, France, Spain, uh, Luxembourg. We did a night in Tel Aviv, Israel to start off the tour. Mm-hmm. And uh, they even came back and did a big rock festival in, in uh, uh, Guadalajara, Mexico. Cool. So I am technically the second call drummer on that behind Brian, I guess. Uh-huh. And also another great L.A. drummer, uh, Ty Dennis, also does that gig. Mm. Uh, he plays with um, the, the Doors or Ray Manzanarek and, and that whole world. Right, right. So um, the three of us kind of rotate in and out. And unfortunately for Ryan, I mean, he's been really busy with the, the Zappa stuff the last few years. So he slugged and told through, you know, 12 years of playing clubs and casinos and everything. And then finally the big payoff European tour comes in and he wasn't available. So <laughs> <laughs> I was able to do a few of these. So it yeah. uh, worked out great for me. Well, there's, yeah. there's a couple of things I want to unpack in there. And, and first of all, just, you know, the, the concepts of, of timing and relationships are, are two things that we talk about all the time on this podcast. Yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I don't want, people to to misunderstand the project you're on and it's interesting to hear about how it was it was up and running 10 years before bowie died exactly. you know so i i think right. someone could easily assume that you know bowie kicked the bucket and and you you know somebody threw together this tribute show uh in exactly. this in this sort of cynical exploitative way but it was already going yeah so so there's the timing aspect of that and the fact that you got called to sub 3 months before bowie died yeah um and, uh, you know, you, you got, you got called to sub for one show. Exactly. And you treated it, uh, you know, with the seriousness of like, you're the guy now, even though you knew you weren't the guy, you were going to do one show. Uh, but you, you treated it with that kind of seriousness. And I'm sure that had everything to do with, with you getting the chair for those tours. Ab- absolutely. I think that does of me kind of coming back into the, the radar. Um, you know, 12 years is quite a while mm-hmm. and quite a bit of time that even if I did a few gigs with somebody for them to kind of forget about, you know, who I was or right. what not or, you know, what I was really about. So for me to come in and that was a thing that they really because they have had some other subs and um, I've talked to other members of the band um, that it's a tough chair to fill that chair to find somebody because Bowie's catalog is really wide ranging. I mean, it's all the way from like kind of folky kind of stuff through all the kind of funky seventies stuff. And then the eighties is the, you know, Nile Rogers, you know, big produced Omar and Tony Thompson and all that. And then even after that, you get into some um, Trent Reznor produced like kind of drum and bass kind of weird stuff. Mm -hmm. But, um, 
I'd heard that some other guys would have trouble, um, and probably really the more, most challenging part of that gig is running those damn tracks and <laughs> running, running that thing and getting the timing, um, getting the timing of of his talking and the delivery and when you got to hit this and and that and that takes a while and I'd heard that some other guys really kind of struggle with that mm-hmm. and I think that was a big thing that um why they felt more comfortable with me and believe me i mean we've had some some hiccups with with me doing that too and that's that's some stressful stuff to me i mean i don't get nervous too often playing anymore right right? sure you don't uh but when things you know where i do get nervous is where i feel you know things could go wrong or where i feel somehow unprepared and with electronics and all that 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 stuff can be kind of hit or miss, and that's all kind of new for me. So we've had a few um, interesting moments, we'll put it that <laughs> Is it, you know? And are you working, working with a click with those tracks? Uh, yeah, there, there's a click uh, always in one ear, and uh, he's even it's, – it's nice. He's got some instruction as well in that. And I play with a, a, another band that, that does like some kind of uh, work around town, and they kind of run the same kind of system where in the click – you're, there's also maybe somebody talking, saying, "Okay, there's a break coming up." Or, right. So those kinds of things can help, you know, especially when you're coming on the gig pretty cold. Yeah. You know? So talk about the process of learning that show and and getting comfortable with those tracks. Was that a lot of time alone on your own? Was that a lot of rehearsal with the band? Um, because I I think you know working with tracks and incorporating electronics and click and all that stuff into a live gig is something that that a lot of drummers. Uh, particularly drummers our age. I mean, you're a little bit older than me, but I think drummers yeah. in their twenties are, you know, used to this shit already. Right. And right. and you know, those of us who who didn't grow up with it are having to catch up. So so right. what was right. what was that process like for you? Well, I learned the tunes first, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm I'm in whatever gig if it's a an original artist or or um, you know I'm having to learn some kind of cover tunes like this or tunes from a famous album, I always start with that, right? So I'm starting with the sounds that are there, um, those grooves, those signature fills, and I have like a whole kind of charting system, like I'm sure you do and many of the guys on this podcast do. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a very visual person. It helps me to write down with my hand on a piece of paper notes and to see those notes. Yeah. I'm, I'm not one of those guys that can just hear something and remember it. Right. Uh, it really helps me to see something. Even if there's not a lot of detail, my charts don't look like regular drum parts. They're kind of numbers and, and different signals that mean stuff to me. That's a basic song form. So right. I start with that and then uh, I take a listen to the backing tracks and I'm like, okay, is this is this following this album version of the song or or whatnot, and just going over form-wise, what's happening. Um, maybe sometimes I'll write in on my chart if there is some kind of segue or there is some kind of weird count. I'll definitely write that in my notes so mm-hmm. that everything is there. But I start with the original tune, then go to the the tracks and just see if everything lines up. And if it doesn't, obviously the track is is the priority, and right. we've varied from the original right. version. Right. Um, yeah, I, I have a, a similar process of just like, you know, I, I try to just listen to the songs as much as possible before I even sit down on the drums. 
Um, right. I, I kind of learned this about myself recently that the more the more I just listen to the song when I'm in the car or washing dishes or doing whatever, like the more reps I get the song into my ears, yeah. Yeah. The, the less work I'm going to have to do when I sit down to chart it or sit That's down good. on the drums. Um, right. So it's more of a time-consuming process, but I, I feel like just really knowing the song, right. you know, not heard, just knowing the drum Gad part. I heard Dad talk about that too. Yeah, yeah. I heard Dad talk about when he would go into a, a session that he would just want to have his coffee and have them play the song over and over while he just kind of was sitting around hanging out yeah. and just internalizing the song. Yeah. It's a yeah, good yeah. idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you talked about how like this this show incorporates the breadth of of Bowie's you know musical output. Um, what what is your approach on on the drums as far as your drum choice and your tuning and your sounds and I mean it's a lot of ground to cover. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Um, well, we're, depends on if it's a, a local gig or a traveling gig because right. if we're traveling. Everything is backline, mm. uh, and right down to the cymbals and everything. Oh, really? So, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I travel with um, like a little, you know, briefcase, Pelican case that has my whole backing track rig in it. Mm-hmm. So that's got the iPad, an iPad mount, a little four-channel mixer, all my cables, a DI. You know, so it looks like a little bomb or something like you know like a suitcase with like <laughs> it, tons of wire yeah is it handcuffed like to your wrist <laughs> yeah it looks like it should be right and then when it goes through the the you know scanner at the airport it always sets off alarms because it just looks like a, a mess of wires and crazy things yeah so that's actually the only thing i travel with that and you know a stick bag wow. um so uh when i'm in town um I actually, a few years ago, bought a 70s Slingerland chrome over wood concert tom kit. Yeah, I've seen uh, that. I know that kit. Just to have that sound available. You know, it was, it was like 350 bucks or something. Mm-hmm. And that's a very unique sound. And for someone my age, that was usually most of our uh, – I'm 46 now. So I grew up – you know, I started drumming in the late 70s uh, as a little kid. And that was like the sound. That was the sound of Kiss and the Eagles and ELO and – right everything else so uh, and it's a very distinct sound mm-hmm. and feel i mean you know there's no air being contained so when you hit the drum the air just goes out the bottom right oh. <laughs> right yeah and uh i've got uh bruce jacoby at remo hooked me up with some i told him i had this kit and i wanted to go full 70s with yeah. this what do you suggest headwise and he's like oh man well we've got pinstripes with dots on them <laughs> so pinstripes with dots plus i have like napkins and everything taped on yeah so when I play in town, I use that kit. And it's really fun, man, because uh, it is the sound of like, you know, golden years or fame or any of those 70s like yeah. drum fills. I mean, it is the sound. And, you know, the other guys in the band, when like we start to play that, they're not really used to hearing that, that they just light up. They look yeah. over, oh my God, like that, that, <laughs> that sound. Yeah. And no one uses those kinds of drums really these days. So, it's kind of fun and refreshing. Um, I, I do a little bit of maybe prepping the snare. I mean, that's definitely a gig that probably could use two snares, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, because there's a lot of different snare sounds. But, um, you know, I will just do my best to uh, maybe throw on a big fat snare head yeah. or uh, a ring or, or adjust the snare tension to try to just get some different sounds. But 
you know, uh, I mean, that's definitely a, a gig where if, if there was the budget and, and everything to do it, you could have some kind of crazy hybrid kit that had a few different sounds. Right. But, but um, I, I mean, I, I'm of the opinion that, that I, you know, I, I just don't think that's always necessary. I mean, that's, there, that's true. if, you know, there are so many things you can do to, to manipulate the sound of one snare drum. That's, that's absolutely true. So a lot of times certain tunes, I'll, I'll be hitting rim shots, certain tunes I'm not hitting rim shots. Right. You know? Right. Um, like I said, I'll manipulate the snare by bringing in some different things on it. Yeah, uh, yeah, just by the the level that you're hitting the drums, you know. And uh, it probably won't sound exactly like it does on the record, but like if if you can allude to that sound, if you can imply, you know, that timbre or that attack or whatever it is that makes that snare sound what it is, right? Um, you can almost like kind of force your that sound onto that drum you know right. what I mean? like like you know bend it in that way yeah I, yeah so the other thing you mentioned um is that you're you're one of two or three drummers that that right. rotate in and out of this chair and that's something that uh as far as i can tell is becoming more and more common with with bands of any type like even original bands singer songwriters will have like two or three guys that they go to. And I was, I was talking with my wife the other night about how, you know, I don't, it's, it's been so long. I mean, it's been since I was in Kansas city that, that I was, um, you know, the drummer in a band, right. You know? Right. Um, so is that, I mean, well, I think that's, that's the nature of the, the industry these days. Right. I mean, we, you talk about it on the show and we're aware of it. I think, you know, a lot of ways the industry is contracting and, and shrinking, and especially as far as live bands go or, mm-hmm. or what not, not uh, record labels, of course, and whatnot. So I think uh, back in the day, it used to be that you could have a gig that could support, you know, a family or, or buying a home or some kind of lifestyle that today maybe there isn't as much of that. So all of us have to kind of piece you know, a lot of different things together, whether they be different gigs together or teaching and running a podcast and, you know, running your own bands and everything like that. Yeah. So I think every, I think that's leading to everyone having to kind of do different gigs, piece things together and band leaders having to, you know, have multiple people in a spot. I mean, I, you know, with the bands that I lead, I sub myself out. You've done it for me. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. But so there's the, the professional challenge and the financial challenge of, of piecing together gigs like that and, and kind of being one of a few guys. Um, but, you know, I've, I've also um, run up against, you know, my own sort of psychological and emotional issues having to do with, you know, being territorial about a gig or, um, you know, just kind of that, that sense of competition or jealousy or, or whatever and having right. to share a gig with other guys. Right. Um, and I, I get the sense that you're like me, not, not in the sense of being jealous, but in the sense of, of placing a high value on, um, on loyalty and kind of the family vibe of a band. Um, uh-huh. So, you know, has that, has that been a challenge for you to, to kind of get over that psychological hump? Well... Not not with that band because uh, I'm kind of the new guy, right, you know, right. coming in. So, um, I mean, I've been really kind of fortunate with that situation that, that it worked out scheduling-wise for me to do those tours and, and whatnot. 
And um, so I can't, I can't speak for the other guys, but um, I'm trying to think of other gigs uh, if that comes up. Um, I mean, yeah, I, that, that, that can be a, a thing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, I mean, you've had, you've had longstanding relationships uh, 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 with, with some producers and artists in, in LA. Um, right, right, right. Right. Yeah. Of the thing of like, then hearing about that they maybe did a recording and called somebody else and right. whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that's, a, that can hurt, you know, that can hurt when you hear about that happening. But also I think, um, the, the older I've gotten, uh, I've, I've gotten more confident with just knowing, you know, I, I do what I do mm-hmm. and, and some people like, really like what I do and, and want that. And, uh, but I, I don't need to do everything perfectly. And there might be times when, you know, somebody else is better or they want somebody else and it doesn't even have anything to do with me. You right. know, it, it, it might not have anything to do with me at all. It might have, uh, yeah. And the, the, the thing things. that I've, the thing that I've found that's been reassuring is, you know, if, if, uh, if somebody that you have a relationship with, you know, uses somebody else on a thing and you get your feelings a little bit hurt, they'll almost always come back to you. It's, it's, it's not usually like, right. I'm done with you forever. Right. Um, right. So That's I, true. you know, I just have to remind myself that sometimes like it's, it's going to come back around it, you know, right. they didn't forsake you. They still like you. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, and, uh, yeah, that, that's true. And I have a, a one, um, artist and he does a lot of producing and stuff that I work quite a bit with. And he's called me very, very consistently for the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he, a few years ago did, uh, an album with, um, we'll just say one of the biggest studio drummers in, in LA that we all know. And, and, and I was just like, oh, great. You know, now he's going to come, but he's never going to call me again. Right, <laughs> right. Know, he's working with like the, the guy that is the first call guy for everything. I was yeah. like, you know, and yet he, he did. I mean, he still calls me for all that stuff. And, and that doesn't really change. I mean, I don't know if he has ever called that guy after doing that album with him and everything. And he had said he had a great experience with that guy. But, you know, uh, that was one of those funny things where I was, I mean, you know, that was just my own voice in my head. Yeah. You know, yep. that, uh, you know, man, that voice, a lot, right? <laughs> that voice never goes away. Does it? <laughs> it never goes away. <laughs> You're right. Uh, and that, I mean, that's something else we we've talked about a lot on the podcast. Like no matter where you live, no matter how high on the totem pole you get, I think every drummer, every musician, you know, deals with, with those, those kind of that, that voice in their head. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and that voice is what pushes us, I think, to, to continue to, to practice and move forward. But also it can really uh, be a hindrance. You yeah. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think self-esteem and um, self-esteem regarding drumming and music is something that I've struggled with my, mm-hmm. whole, my whole life, you know, yeah. and, and still deal with. And I look back at choices I made maybe because uh, I didn't feel confident enough about myself or whatnot. And I made certain choices that, you know, probably just held things up for me, you Mm. know, you know, and rather than going for something, I kind of held back and I didn't, I didn't step forward and do something. And, you know, yeah, I talk, talk to my students about that a lot about, you know, you know, 
confidence in yourself is a huge thing. Yeah. And developing that confidence and, and that muscle and, um, you know, that's really, you have to believe in yourself first. Yes. You know? Yes. You really do. It's interesting you, you say that because I, I kind of, I learned the same lessons from, from the other side. I think for a long time I was, I was too confident in myself. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, it's, it's still something I struggle with to, you know, to not, to, to come off confident, but not cocky to, mm-hmm. uh, to not have a sense of entitlement about things. You know, I, I remember when I first moved to LA, um, I had spent seven years in Kansas city, uh, getting a lot of professional experience and, and, you know, getting a lot of shit together. And, and I, I thought that when I moved to LA that, uh, those dues that I paid in Kansas city were going to mean something to anyone right. in LA. Right. <laughs> wrong. <laughs> wrong. Wrong again. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like the, there's, you know, confidence, confidence can come from two places. It can come from that sense of entitlement, um, or it can come from, uh, the, you know, the knowledge that you've put the work in, that you've put the time in. Um, and I right. think that's, that's definitely the better, the better kind of confidence to, to show yeah. up with. Yeah. And, and, and also just confidence and, and that you are, that you're worthy, you know, yeah. that you're worthy of, of these gigs or, or, you know, of playing with these certain people. You know, I think a lot of times that was, that was a thing that would get in my way of, man, this guy plays with so-and-so or whatever. Like what's, what are they going to think when they play with me or, right. you know, or why would they want to play with me or whatnot? Those mm-hmm. kinds of things, uh, come into my head. And, um, you know, and it's, it's been having to retrain those thoughts, you know what I mean? To, to really, um, like you say, confidence of just years of experience. That's mm-hmm. one thing, but, um, actually even, you know, I have a big meditation practice and like literally just putting new thoughts into my consciousness. I and, remember you, you mentioned that a few years ago It was before I moved and, and we were having a conversation and you, you said you had just, had you just started like the whole meditation thing? No, I don't think so. No, it's, it's, it's been, been going for quite okay. a while. Okay. Maybe it's just that I maybe learned, I, I learned just, that about maybe you. I, maybe I would, was, um, just starting to kind of practice it on a daily I think that's what it was thing maybe yeah. that so yeah. this is this is a daily thing for you when I'm when I'm being good <laughs> <laughs> like yeah when I wake up on time and and uh, everything yeah yeah I try to make it uh like you know first 15 minutes of my day wow you know and yeah. sometimes using an app like headspace and whatnot but mm-hmm. I've been doing it long enough where I can uh I know what I need to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's, it helps. It yeah. helps me get into, you know, kind of put the quiet my mind and get clear on what it is I want to do and, and what my goals are. And yeah. And uh, positive reinforcement from within. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, let's talk about grits and gravy because okay. I, I think it's a, it's, it's kind of a unique, um, company that you've created and it i mean it started out as as uh you know these three bands that mm-hmm. that you lead um mm-hmm. but they were they were all kind of in and of themselves and you decided to incorporate them into this company basically right. so so talk about those three groups and and how they were they were brought together under this umbrella sure uh well back in 99 when i lived in san francisco i started a new orleans style brass band 
with another guy named John Birdsong. And um, that band was just like all these bands that I've started. Um, they're just to make music that I really want to make. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's a music that I love, that I, I don't find myself playing that music, and I want to create that. So that's, it's not starting as a money-making thing. It's not starting as a, that kind of band. It's just for the love of that music. Mm-hmm. And that band um, was a really cool band in the late 90s in San Francisco and early 2000s. We were playing you know, the hippest clubs kind of around town, had a real following. We put out a few records. And uh, then when I moved down here, uh, the band kind of de- then turned into more of like a private corporate event band. And um, I've been leading that all along. So, gosh, that's, uh, what, 18 years now yeah. I've been doing that band. And um, so then a few years ago, I think you and I had talked about that. I, you know, I moved down here in 2003, and most of the work that I'd done here in town had been rock-based you know, um, tours and recordings and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I didn't really pursue to go into the jazz scene here or anything like that. Yeah. And um, I was really uh, longing for doing some more music down here that I really love. And I love, as you know, kind of soulful African-American-based music. You know, New Orleans music, uh, Memphis. I really like that stuff. So Mm -hmm. um, I created this organ trio because actually a club down here called me, Sassafras, called me to do the brass band, yet they didn't have any budget for six or seven people. So I presented this other band that I had that was just an idea in my head of an organ trio. Right. 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 Uh, I didn't actually have that band yet, but, <laughs> but I, you said I you did. It. I said <laughs> I did. Um, because I knew that was, uh, would fit this kind of aesthetic that they were looking for of a Southern soulful music. Mm-hmm. And um, that it was only three people yet. We could have a great sound. And I love that music. So, they went for that. We started playing then with this organ trio. It was, the original lineup was uh, Jeff Babco uh, and Andrew Sinewick. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. So that's how that started at Sassafras. Um, uh, you picked, you picked like two of the busiest guys in town. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, they were very busy. And the club loved it, and they started to want to do more and more. Mm-hmm. And, and those guys just weren't really available for that. So that was when I met Ty, mm-hmm. our mutual friend. Ty Bailey. Ty Bailey. And he is an organist extraordinaire. Yes. And also uh, somebody who's crazy enough to haul around an organ and to bring it to uh, rehearsals and <laughs> yep. delighted to do it and load it by himself and everything. So I um, remember I, I, uh, I'd been friends with Ty for a little while and I was talking to someone else about him Um and I was like, have you met this guy, Ty Bailey? And they were like, is he that guy that just hauls the B3 and the Leslie everywhere? <laughs> like that was the reputation that preceded him, you know, the, right. just the guy with the van. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Ty came into the picture, uh, James. So then we started doing that weekly gig at Sassafras, and yeah. that was great. So um, Rump Roller Organ Trio then, you know, became another thing that I didn't really set out to be starting another project, but it turned into something. It got some legs. Mm-hmm. And uh, for, for almost four years, we were every Monday night at Sassafras. And the last few 
months now we're kind of moving around to a bunch of different bars on Monday nights rather than being just there. Mm-hmm. And then um, the Deep Cuts is another group I started a few years ago, again, wanting to do old soul music um, with horns and with just a great rhythm section of people that love that music. Yeah. So I started that. Um, now we've even got Woody Mankowski in this mix, who's a great uh, Midwestern uh, boy who has relocated to LA, tremendous blue-eyed soul singer and yeah. saxophonist. So we've got another project based around him. And um, so yeah, I had all these different bands I was leading uh, with separate websites and separate everything. And um, I was just like, this is crazy. Like I should try to put all this under one roof so I can kind of present them together, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so I, you know, came up with Grits and Gravy as this umbrella I guess we could call it a company. I mean, it's just basically me, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, that I can steer people to one spot. And then there's a menu of these different, you know, soulful, groovy bands with a vibe right. you know, that people can hire and whatnot. Right. So I'm really great with uh, formulating ideas. And I like the creative aspect of putting together new projects and, and building them up. I, I love all that. I love. I even love graphic design and and doing the the site and the imagery and all that. Man, where I fall short is promotion, mm. you know. And um, so now, you know, once I built that whole thing up, I'm faced with okay, now I've got to go out and promote this brand or right uh, and whatnot. And that's where then I kind of run out of steam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Personality-wise, so um, that's I'm recently brought James Aker, the guitar player, mm-hmm. in from uh, uh, Rump Roller to kind of partner with me because he's got a whole different skill set. Of um, you know, he's run management companies. Uh, you know, he was an original member of Royal Crown Review, so he's done a lot of things. He his wife's a big actress in Hollywood, so he's got this whole other side of kind of contacts and skills and what. So uh, I think he's going to help us kind of branch into some different areas, including um, just licensing all this music that we're kind of generating and creating and not only doing live performances, but perhaps some uh, music licensing and library stuff. Yeah, yeah. It just, it struck me as such a, a savvy move to kind of create this company and to offer these different bands as you know different um different expressions of a single aesthetic right you know right because whether it's a club or a private event or a you know a, a movie shoot or a, what like whoever is looking at you um you know if they if they know they want that aesthetic if they know they want that kind of vintage soul vibe um yeah you know they have they have a bunch of stuff to choose from they don't have to go to a bunch of different websites they like exactly. it's a, it's a one-stop shop with with you know multiple options yes um, yes and, yeah. the, and the trick is this is finding the people that do want that one-stop shop of soul options right right <laughs> i don't know how many people there are out there like it, there are people but it's it's just how do i find those people mm-hmm. you know that's what i'm trying to figure out now because you know so many people uh you know they're not looking for something that specific. You know what I mean? They're looking for something that's a little broader, uh, perhaps safer, you know? Yeah. um, But I think they think they want, (laughs) you know, because honestly, I've had this happen a lot 
uh, with the brass band. I mean, because the brass band is pretty unique. I mean, yeah, that's a pretty specific thing. A brass band, yeah, the brass band is a very specific thing to hire. And we've had uh, this happen many times over the years where a couple that wants to hire us that's getting married, they're fans of Jazz Fest or New Orleans. And uh, they call me up, and it's not a cheap band, you know, for us to do a reception. Mm-hmm. Uh, it starts around five thousand dollars, you know, yeah. for seven piece band. So uh, then, you know, they send uh, the the contract and the the deposit <laughs> request to the parents who are paying for this. And I have literally had people say, like, "What? We're why are we paying five thousand dollars for a marching band at the <laughs> wedding? What the hell is this?" You know. <laughs> and they are very skeptical and and almost try to pull the plug on their on their kids wedding and and you know but it's so funny usually those people that do not understand it the the people from you know the midwest or somewhere else who's never been to new orleans at the wedding when they actually experience it they are just like they're the biggest fan right so one of the things i love about rump roller especially is you know the the versatility of the of the repertoire in the same set you might play a really old school jack mcduff or charles Ireland organ tune and then you'll turn around and play shake it off and i i think it's it's something that you really consciously put into all the groups you lead um is whether it's the instrumentation or the song choice there's there's something in every song for almost anyone to kind of latch on to and say that's familiar i dig that right right i do that is a conscious choice and uh it's something i realized early on with the brass band uh because we started doing some kind of uncommon for that instrumentation covers. Uh, first it was a Zeppelin, uh, medley that I came up with. And then we did some Roger and Zap, which was like some eighties, you know, like, um, R and B and man, the crowds would love it. You know, we would have, um, some, you know, 80 year old grandma dancing to the ocean, you know, which is like in 15, (laughs) right. And just loving it and hooping it up. But she didn't know that that was Leb Zeppelin or that it was in 15 or didn't care or anything about that. All she knew was that there was a bunch of horns playing and that it reminded her of Benny Goodman. Right. You know what I mean? Right, right. And, and that, that energy is what was getting over. And um, Carrie uh, brought in years ago um, a tune from Up, Married Life. It's like, uh, you know, the, the Pixar movie Up. Yeah. And there's, a, there's, the, there's the scene where it kind of goes through the couple's whole life. It's like a really beautiful right, kind of right. tear-jerking scene. And it's this nice uh, waltz, you know. Mm-hmm. And we've played it on and off over the years. And, you know, occasionally someone will kind of pick up on it or, hey, I recognize that. Well, we played it last night and we played it super mellow. And, and this is a bar. It's not really like Sassfrass where people are like attentively listening. I mean, no one was like really paying us any attention last night. And then all of a sudden we finished this tune and the bar – like stopped and went into like the biggest applause <laughs> and it was the craziest thing yeah. and, like they all picked up you know on that one side and they totally knew what that was from there and, and it was so funny you just never know when you're gonna hit with a chord with a certain audience you know yeah a lot of times people don't know why they really enjoy it if it's the groove they're feeling right. or if it's the familiar tune they're feeling or if it's just the kind of joy that we're all having while we play it. A lot of times people just pick up on how happy we all are and yeah. how fun we're kind of having when we play. The the camaraderie, you know, that that we have. And um Yeah. And that's it's something that happens in music, it's something that happens in comedy. Like, 
you know, if, if, <clears throat> if you're watching a band that's having a great time, like all of a sudden you're having a great time. Yes. If you watch yes. outtakes from a movie where the actors are just laughing their asses off, like there wasn't even a joke or a punchline. <laughs> They're just like giggling uncontrollably. Right. And that makes you laugh uncontrollably. It's just, yeah. it's really contagious. Yeah, it is. Speaking of New Orleans, uh, you, you're uh, on the faculty at Musicians Institute, and yes. one of the courses uh, you teach, you sent me this, I don't know, 50-page PDF or something that was, uh, <laughs> that was this course that you teach in New Orleans drumming. Um, yes. So, you know, in, in the past, uh, I've interviewed Jamison Ross, who lives in New I Orleans. Uh, Jamal yeah. Watson is a born and bred New Orleans drummer. Um, so, you know, we've been learning more and more about the depth and breadth of, of New Orleans drumming and that it, it's just so far beyond just jazz. Um, oh, yeah. So talk a little bit about that course and, and what New Orleans drumming uh, has, has meant to you over the years. Yeah, sure. Um, so it's a, an elective course at MI. Um, and I, I, New Orleans drumming, I think I first came into contact with it. I, can, I, I know exactly when. Uh, I was a freshman in 1989 at CU Boulder. Uh, studying civil engineering, <laughs> and uh, Branford Marcellus came to town, to Denver, mm -hmm. to do a show. And uh, I went to see them perform, and Tane, you know, Jeff Tane Watts was playing. And they did uh, an Ornette Coleman tune called Ramblin'. It's off of, like, uh, Change of the Century. Great, great recording. But they, and I didn't know that. You know, I wasn't that really into straight ahead. But they did it as a second line. Hmm. And I just was like, that is the coolest groove I've ever heard. You know, this whole syncopated kind of counterpoint yes. rolling snare drum thing with the kick drum. And it just like blew me away. And then um, probably a, a year later, maybe I heard uh, my first brass band and that just blew me away. And then I was at a, um, a, some kind of drum camp in 91 with Ed Sof. And Ed Sof was playing... Uh, examples of music that we should be familiar with. And, man, he played meters. And I don't know, I don't think it was Sissy Strut. I think it was like Africa or it was some other tune that he was, he put on. And, man, it struck me like a bolt of lightning. <laughs> like, this is the funkiest shit I have ever heard. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. at the time, it's like way into Chick Corea Electric Band and I was into like Tower Power and, um, you know, things that, you know, I thought were funky or whatnot. And right. I was just like, oh my God, what's this? <laughs> yeah. So that, there was, there's definitely something in that music that resonates deeply with me. And, and, and I, um, and my dad grew up, he was a big, like Fats Domino yeah. kind of, and, and, um, whatnot. So I remember he would have, uh, this Fats Domino record, which actually is on that shelf back there. <laughs> uh, and it had, I'm, I'm walking. Right, right. that killer kind of intro and, and Earl Palmer, and, and I would love to listen to that as a little kid. So there's something in there with that. So um, I then you know started the brass band. I got way into the brass band stuff, uh, got way into the meters, got way into just studying all those drummers and kind of doing my own just study. Idris Muhammad, yeah. once discovered him, huge fan of his. Uh, James Black, you know, all these different guys. I got way into it. So um, in my lessons, sometimes early on at, at MI, we're talking now like six or seven years ago, 
um, I would occasionally talk about that with my students and I would start to show them some, some meters or I would show them, you know, some second line stuff and start to talk to them about playing kind of in the cracks between straight and swung. And these students would be like, man, you should do a course on this stuff. There's nothing like, this is awesome. And this is a whole world we don't know anything about. Well, you know, I kind of heard that quite a few times and I went and presented it to the guy that was running the program. I'm like, Hey, you know, They've got Latin drumming. They've got, you know, James Brown drumming. There's all these different electives. And mm-hmm. I was like, how about this New Orleans drumming? Mm-hmm. And because when you really look at it, it is the history of our instrument. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the history of the drum set. It's the history of American music. Yeah. It's, you know, it's early jazz. It's big band. It's, it's, uh, it's the common denominator. It's, it's in everything. It's, it's why we play two and four. It's everything. So, yeah. You know, I I kind of presented that to him, and he loved the idea. So I then started doing research, and I did research for about six months, um, and hammered out this ten week curriculum, which is the thing I sent you. And wow. it really, you know, to me, made sense to kind of do it as a as a timeline, mm-hmm. you know. And um, it was funny, like I was, I had, I think it was all done, and maybe I was starting to teach the course. Um, when then Daniel Glass released that Century project, right? So it's kind of along similar lines in the in the way it it kind of starts pre drum set with two drummers and then kind of the evolution of the drum set. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so I I start you know talking about the brass bands and the two separate drummers, the bass drummer and the snare drummer, and how that all works. And then we follow the the evolution of the bass drum pedal. And putting de- together the drum set, and I bring in all this gear from the 1920s and 30s. Yeah. Uh, either I own or I rent from a friend, and we actually piece together in the second week of class the basically the first drum set ever, and where the different components came from, what countries and what immigrants, and how this is a truly American instrument. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and up through big band, and then you know R and B, and turning into getting into rock and how things went from swinging to kind of flattening out Mm -hmm. and straight. And um, we look at in the 60s, that's a really fun thing. And and I'm sure maybe you've noticed this with the gigs you're doing now and really getting into that music. When you look at soul music in the 60s, like if you take a listen to the stuff from New York, like Atlantic Records, right, or uh, Detroit with Motown or Memphis and Stax and everything, um, you know, there's two and four is happening pretty heavy there and, mm-hmm. and, and whatnot. And then you listen to these artists that are coming out of New Orleans and man, it, the drummer has like free reign. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's funny. It's just like these guys could never get away with this stuff in any of these other cities. I right. Think. Right. So much more syncopated. And I think it's a very drum centric town mm-hmm. and, and there's something about just that they are open more to that or they're wanting that in that music. But it's funny when you listen to uh, the soul music from these other cities versus New Orleans, man, it is just so much more syncopated. It's usually based on like a two-bar phrase. You know, it's kind of a longer phrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got that big four kind of accent a lot of times happening. And so we talk about that and then we we get all the way up into modern day guys like um, Stanton Moore or mm-hmm. – Brian Blade, you know, which is yeah. one of my big guys, uh, Johnny Vidakovich. We kind of take it all the way up to those guys. Mm-hmm. Man, it's it, it's a fascinating course, and the like the I I still have yet to 
really dig in heavy into the into the thing you sent me but there's just so much in there and i found it most fascinating like you were talking about that 60s era um where there's just so many drummers and and so many examples of of drumming that um are completely unique and not very well known but um you know became so influential in in the rest of soul music and pop music and right and all that stuff and what's really interesting is these guys um when the case of this guy, Smokey Johnson, um, or yeah, uh, Idris Muhammad, these guys, and, and even earlier on, I mean, you go to the generation earlier, I mean, uh, you know, Zudi Singleton, um, uh, Baby Dodds, mm-hmm. these, these guys all kind of left New Orleans and like those two early guys, they went up to Chicago, right? Mm-hmm. And then these guys that left New Orleans or went to other places, man, it was like they were miles ahead of these drummers in these other towns. Yeah. They were kind of like, these uber drummers that have arrived from outer space, they would had come to their town and everyone was just blown away. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And it, it and makes me happened. wonder, it makes me wonder what would have happened if, if like Zigaboo did the same thing, <laughs> you know, <Right>. but <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's probably a good thing that he stayed put in, <laughs> in new Orleans. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing, you know, that you see how influential these guys were and, mm-hmm. and when they would come to a new town and just, everyone would just study them. The last thing I want to ask you is, is, is just about your family life. Cause it's, it's something else we talk about a lot on the podcast is the balance between, you know, drumming life and, and family life. Um, and for, for those of us who are married or those of us who have kids um, or, you know, even if you're single, you know, it's, it's good to have something other than drumming mm-hmm. <laughs> in your life. Um, but you know, you're a, you're a husband, you're a dad. Uh, we just, uh, we just passed father's day here. Um, so, you know, talk about, talk about your, your family and your wife and, and how you navigate, uh, you know, that, that side of your life. Okay. Uh, well, I think I've heard you mention something about this yourself on the podcast of, uh, I think one of the biggest things to make this work is having a wife that understands and supports what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, my wife and I met 22 years ago on a cruise ship gig. Yeah. We were both working. She was a dancer. I was drumming. So uh, she went to Cal arts, you know, so she knows about performing. She mm-hmm. knows about, uh, having a passion for something that's creative and expressive uh, she doesn't do that professionally anymore. She hasn't for the last, you know, 18 years or, or so. But I mean, that I think is the first thing that has to happen mm-hmm. is that you have to have a partner that, uh, understands and can be flexible with the fluctuating income or yeah. the, the weird scheduling and, um, being in the, in the, and the limelight and whatnot, you have to have someone that, that's comfortable with right. all that. If you don't, then uh, I think you're, you're going to have troubles from the start. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, to begin with, my wife, Pamela, is amazing, um, amazingly supportive in that way mm-hmm. and always has been. Um, so uh, we have two kids. Um, my son's almost 15. Next week he'll be 15. My daughter will be 11 later this summer. And uh, amazing. I yeah. mean, that's um, I, once I think you, you have a child, it's hard to imagine going through life without having kids and, mm-hmm. and, and experiencing this. But and it's a life changer. It's um, 
something that um, once you do that, you really realize how much time you had before, <laughs> how much free time you had, yeah. how much time you were blowing and wasting and whatnot, and you mm. thought you were busy. Um, so, man, having a family and having kids um, really puts things in perspective timing-wise. you got to be really efficient with your time. you got to make the most of your time. Yeah. And um, it's really forced me to do that. Yeah. Um, and I notice it like, you know, we, we follow each other on Facebook and Instagram and everything. And, and, you know, for, for every, for every picture or post you put up about something music or drumming related, there's at least one post that's with your family or you're at your kid's thing. You're going out to dinner with right. the fam. You're on date night. Right. You're on, you know, right. um, so right. it's, it's really apparent to me that, that, uh, you, you're, you're conscious and successful about, about making time count. Yes, I am. And um, I try to be, at least. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it, it's no joke. I mean, um, once you make this decision to, to bring some other people into this world, I mean, <laughs> uh, that's a big, heavy responsibility. And it's, it's something that, like, I, um, you know, have made choices, I think, career-wise that have led to me maybe being more around and, and here and, and just putting out that energy that I am, I need to be here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? As yeah. opposed to like just being gone and road being, warrior. Yeah. Being a road warrior. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have done some touring over the years and whatnot, but kind of the longest I've ever been away has been six weeks at once. And that mm-hmm. was when the kids were really little. And again, I mean, to have a wife that was able to, for six weeks while I'm out, like, traveling the world and having fun doing all that yeah. is at home running her own business with also having two little kids. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, it takes, you know, somebody else to be able to pull that off. And, right. And know. it takes a lot of trust too. Um, yeah. you know, whether, whether you're on the road or not, um, there's a lot of time that you're, you're apart, like, you know, wife yeah. is home, you're out at the gig. Um, yeah. and, and I think a lot of musicians have, have run into trust issues with their spouses, uh, for one reason or another. But, you know, if that, if, if that trust is in place, um, it just, it makes everything so much easier. You know, I just did, this, I just did this two month tour with, uh, with, uh, the Equinox Orchestra and, you know, my wife, uh, told me about a couple conversations she had with like friends or coworkers or, and, and the people were like, he's going on the road for two months. She's like, yeah. And they were like, and you're, you're okay with that? She's like, right. yeah, it's, it's not, it's not right. a thing. <laughs> yeah. No, there has to be, there has to be that trust. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, you know, also that I think, you know, some, some spouses or girlfriends or boyfriends or whatever, they might, they might tolerate what you do. You know, they might be okay with it and be willing to work with it. But I think the real success comes when they celebrate what you do and they wouldn't have it any other way. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll never forget. I was talking with, uh, uh, Matt Krause's wife, my, my partner in the uh-huh. podcast, uh, just about this kind of, you know, this kind of life, what, it, what you sign up for when you marry a musician. Um, but like my wife, she recognized that that's, that's who he is. That's not just what he does. That's, right. that's what makes him who he is. And she said, I'll never forget. She was like, I don't want to live in a world where Matt Krause doesn't play drums. Right. 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 <laughs> you know, yeah. I think that's what I have. I think that's what you have. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's, it's really important if, uh, if you're going to 
have that part of your life uh, thrive. Absolutely. And, and it's great to have that partner too, then just like to even take that a step further that then recognizes when maybe that you're not totally stepping up and delivering. Yep. And it's like, come on, like, let's you said you want to do this. Let's do this. Yeah. That's you know an I mean? excellent point. I've, I I've mean, had a couple of those conversations yeah, with my wife I have too. and other, other spouses. I think like that conversation would be like, you need to get a real job, right? You know, but but instead, they're like, you need to do more of what you said you want to do. Exactly, exactly right. <laughs> like, let's get serious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I've had that conversation as well. Yeah. Know? Yeah. It's a, it's a loving ass kicking they administer. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But I do have a great balance, man. I mean, I, you know, I think I uh, years ago, you know, would look at um, – maybe a lot of the gigs my friends were doing that were these high profile gigs, you know, really close friends of mine. And I would be a little bit jealous or kind of wonder when's my turn going to be or what's, what's going on or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And man, I think all that has kind of gone away and I'm very comfortable with kind of the career I've carved out for myself. And not that I haven't done some cool things. I, you know, I'm traveling the world playing drums. I play with, you know, my own groups and, you know, I get to teach and share what I do. And I'm making, you know, some great music and, and whatnot. And um, I've really kind of come into the the comfort with where I'm at, you know, yeah, uh, with my career in the last few years. And and also when I look at my life as a whole, it is very balanced. I mean, I've got you know some of my other friends. When I look at them, I'm like, wow, their career might be really great or really impressive. But when I look at their life as a whole, I'm like, Ooh, I don't know that I would want to, I definitely would not want to trade right. with what I've got. I mean, I've got uh, a wonderful life going on. I'm, I'm really, really fortunate. And yeah. I can I'm tell. Happy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for talking. Absolutely. Uh, Zach. Anytime, man. Great to see your success in Atlanta. Oh, thank you, man. What's going I'm, on down there. I'm having a good time. It's a great yeah, time. And it, it seems like you really took to heart a lot of things that, like, yeah, you've learned from the podcast or, like, I think that maybe we even talked about before. About yeah, yeah. When, that, you, when you hit the ground in Atlanta, I think you really kind of were like, okay, yeah. I'm going to learn from my time in L.A. and Definitely. You know, there were conversations stuff. I had with you and with Ty and with Nick Mancini and – uh, moving, moving here was definitely my chance to, to put him into practice. So that's great, man. Yeah. I'm really proud of you. And it sounds like it's going great. And thanks, man. You know, I'm, I was hearing, the, I was checking out some videos on your site and I was like, Oh, I want to hear him with these new bands, and, <laughs> you know, hearing the new Orleans stuff. And then I'm like, wait a minute. And all of a sudden we're into like this Asia giant drum solo. What's going on? <laughs> this new Orleans thing. And then I'm like, Oh, well, let me check out the other band. And then I'm like, Oh, cool. You know, R&B group. Wait a minute. Another giant drum solo? <laughs> Zach? Uh, I didn't, I, you know, Your I didn't. Your jazz ways are dying hard, man. Uh, I didn't realize. I, I should probably not have more than one drum solo on the cover page of my website. That's <laughs> uh, that's a little self-indulgent. <laughs> well, you sound great in that stuff. You Thank great. you, man. And soloing is always beautiful and Thank you. And and yeah, you, you got it. So yeah, promote it, man. Thanks so much, man. Great talking right. with you. Do that. Thanks, buddy. I love talking to Kevin because every time I do, it reminds me to be positive, work hard, be grateful. Uh, just keep putting one foot in front of the other to make music you love and have a career you can be proud of. 
it's a hard thing to be grounded as a musician anywhere, but especially in L.A., and I think Kevin is, is pulling it off. Once again, go to patreon.com slash working drummer if you feel like throwing a little bread our way each month. Thank you in advance for that. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and share pics and videos of your gigs using the hashtag working drummer. We want to thank Mike Jackson for all he does on the technical tip to make this podcast happen every week. Matt Krause is back at you next week, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.